And now, it's time for Lawyers for Jesus Radio, lighting our path through law. A show about faith in the law and in the marketplace. Featuring the partners from the law firm Mauk and Baker. Located in downtown Chicago, Mauk and Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Good afternoon. Welcome to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Rich Baker, and today we're going to talk with Colonel John Eitzmo uh, about biblical and natural law. John is a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. He is an ordained pastor and serves on the board of the Lutherans for Life. He is a constitutional attorney who has defended home schools, Christian schools, and the rights of students to study the Bible in public schools, and the right to display the Ten Commandments in the public arena. He has authored 14 books, including the book we'll be mostly speaking of today, Historical and Theological Foundations of Law. I am an attorney and a partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are a Christian attorney's law firm that focuses on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. We do everything from zoning to estate planning, not-for-profit administration to religious freedom. You can find more out about us by going to M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com, that's MaukBaker.com, or call 312-726-1243. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to keep up to date on developments about faith and the law. But now, returning to our conversation with John. John, welcome to the show I always love to give my uh, listeners a little bit of background with regard to whoever's speaking. Uh, you are an attorney. You're a uh, military man. You're a pastor. Uh, you're a professor. Uh, and you've written a number of books. The one we want to highlight is the Historical and Theological Foundations of Law. Uh, my first question is, when do you sleep? <laughs> well, I try to get eight hours of sleep every week. That's... I used to say that, and <laughs> as I'm getting older now, I find that I can't quite sustain that like I used to, but just try to make as good use of time as I can. The book you're talking about, by the way, Historical and Theological Foundations of Law, 1,500 pages. Once I finish that, my wife says, the problem is I now don't know what to do with myself between 1 and 4 a.m. Uh, 1,500 pages. Uh, I Frankly, I saw that, I've, and I've put it on my Christmas list. The The issues that you are raising in this book are very, very fundamental and, frankly, not taught or thought about today. Give us a little background. What's the purpose of this book? What are you trying to do? The broad purpose of it is to emphasize that the main issue that is facing the legal community, not only in America but throughout the world, is whether law is simply the edict of the state uh, higher human authority that has the muscle to back it up, or whether law to be valid has to conform to a higher law, and the higher law being what some societies would call God or the gods or the Tao or whatever term they want to use. But we consider that important because if there is no higher law by which human law is to be judged, then the state is the final authority. The state can do whatever it wants. There are no limits to the state power other than the limits it wants to impose on itself, which it can, of course, change at any time. And there is no basis for resistance, because if the state's the highest authority, then by definition, there's no such thing as an unjust law. 
And I, I suppose when you say that, we're really talking about might makes right in that situation. Without the belief that there is a higher law to which government must conform, that's exactly what it is. Might makes might makes right, or you might even say might utterly disregards anything about what is right. There are so many uh, avenues we can take. One of the things you said, whether you call it the Tao or you call it um, other types of things, so you're saying that this law is broader than just, let's say, Western culture or broader than just American or English law. What do you mean by this natural law? Well, we're all coming from the same source, ultimately. That is, all of us come from the fall after the Garden of Eden, and what I'm suggesting is that there are echoes of Eden that have continued in societies all across the world, and in Volume 1 of this series, I go through the laws of ancient societies all the way from Egypt and Mesopotamia to India and China to the Inca, the Maya, the Aztec, and even the Cheyenne and the Iroquois Confederacy, which was a remarkable system, all of which demonstrating that there are some basic principles that I would call, or what Paul calls, the law of God written on men's hearts, basic conscience, that we all have to a greater or lesser degree. And so law all over the world has some understanding that there is a higher law. Of course, the best expression of this is that which is given by direct revelation through the scriptures, the laws of the ancient Hebrews. But there are echoes of Eden all over. This is Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Rich Baker of the law firm of Malkin Baker. Today we are talking about biblical and natural law with Colonel John Eidsmo, author of Historical and Theological Foundations of Law. Let's go back. You have three volumes here. The first was the ancient volumes. The second of your uh, treatise has to do with the Middle Ages. And then the final is, is early modern. Uh, trace this through. What do we see? through? What is the thread that you're connecting all the way through these ages? Well, we start with the ancient societies, focusing on the laws of the ancient Hebrews. We then go on in volume two to look at some alternatives, the Greek and Roman systems with their good points and their many bad points, and then in a partial diversion, we look at Sharia law of Islam. Then we show the development of the common law through its ancient roots, the Germanic roots, onto its Celtic, its Viking, its Anglo-Saxon, its Norman roots, on through the effect of law on law of the Lutheran Reformation and the Calvinist Reformation, now we're getting into volume three, and thinkers who develop out of that Reformation thinking, thinkers like Blackstone and Locke and Grotius and many others. And then the last part shows how these principles of law were exported to America in the American colonies. I would like to end up talking a little bit about the law in the American colonies, but before we do this, uh, for instance, if we were to take a look at Chinese law and the development of that culture, how does that draw into natural law or the law? And, and almost we're saying the law of all nations written in our hearts is is what I'm hearing here. How does it? How do? How would the Chinese model fit into that? Well, Rich, I know you yourself have done a great deal of work in that area too. But particularly, I think if you look to China, you find good evidence that. Before about 500 B.C., China was largely monotheistic, 
and its culture reflects something of a knowledge of a biblical heritage. But even as you move after that time, you find the influence of Confucianism, the influence of Taoism, the influence of Buddhism. Somehow these synchronize together a bit, but there is conflict between them. But in all of these, we see an idea of tradition that emphasizes, first of all, that because of human nature, we need law to govern men and keep men in check. And many times in the Chinese system, that's through a web of social relationships that doesn't necessarily have to involve government. And there are some things we can learn there. And But we also see that there is this idea that whether it's the ancestors or whatever it is, that there is some higher authority to which we are accountable. Now, of course, the Marxist system came in in the 1940s and has tried to change that with limited success, but even in Chinese law, we still see, even going back to Confucius, who many say was not really a religious person, I don't we know enough about that, but that even there we see the idea that law and rulers have to govern under what they call the mandate of heaven. Heaven not necessarily meaning the same thing that we mean by it, but that so long as this higher authority, the mandate of heaven, is smiling upon a particular dynasty, that dynasty will prosper and rule well, and when the mandate of heaven is withdrawn, then that dynasty soon falls and is subject to being taken over by others. John, when and you say this, I, I get very excited. I, uh, a story I'd love to relate, I teach um, Chinese grad students, and the first time I sat down with them to do a Bible study after we had looked at American constitutional law, um, I thought that they would know very, very little about God because they had been raised in an atheist system. So the question was asked, and there were about 10 or 12 students around uh, the table, name one characteristic of God. And the conversation proceeded for two and a half hours with these uh, legal professors and lawyers from China um, as to characteristics of God. And I began to realize that, that the understanding, this natural law, this something within us is far deeper and and was not driven out by the Cultural Revolution um, and, and is in all of us today. So uh, that would seem to run along the lines of what you are uh, writing about in this book that, that you've um, labored over, obviously. Let me just make one quick comment before we go to the break, if I could. I just yes, got please. back a couple of months ago from speaking to the All-Asia Creation Conference in Nepal, which, of course, borders between China and India. And I had learned there about a conference where there was an American scientist present at a conference of Chinese scientists, and he was amazed at how critical they were of Charles Darwin and of the Darwinist philosophy of science. But anyway, when he expressed his amazement, he was told, that, well, in China, we can't criticize the government, but we can criticize Darwin. In America, you can criticize the government, but you can't criticize Darwin. <laughs> That's really true. That's quite a remarkable insight. There, there are so many remarkable uh, insights from that. Coming up, we will talk further with Colonel John Eidsmo with regard to his book, Historical and Theological Foundations of Law and the Real Connection Between Law and Theology. I'm Rich Baker of Mount and Baker, and you're listening to Lawyers for Jesus.
Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Rich Baker, partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker, and we're talking with retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel John Eidsmo. John, uh, before the break, we were talking about your book, Historical and Theological Foundations of Law, and I wanted to get back into it. Uh, What's the connection between theology and law? I'd love to answer that. Let me make one quick pause before we do in order to give a little commercial for your law firm. We first, the Foundation for Moral Law, became acquainted with your law firm just a couple of months ago when one of your attorneys, Noel Starrett, was involved in a case in Alabama and needed an Alabama firm to join with him in the petition that involved a church in southeast Alabama, Dothan, where this church was not being given a zoning variance to build in this property. And with Noel's and your firm's very capable legal work, and like I think our capable legal work at all, we managed to get the city council to quickly back down and agree to grant that variance. And so that church is building and we'll be meeting there very shortly. Uh, praise and God for that, John, so and thank you for we'll the We'll be able to work with you again. Thank you for the good work you did there. We would love to continue to work for, for you. And, and uh, indeed, we do a lot of the, the zoning issues, which are surprising, but churches so often find resistance either in expansion or in just uh, opening up and, and uh, buying a piece of property and getting the zoning for it. So uh, we'd love to work with anyone in that. But I want to come back to your book. We're talking about histo- sure. <laughs> historical and theolo- uh, theological foundations of law. And in particular, I asked the question, what's the connection between theology and law? Well, law is ultimately based on moral values. When we believe, for example, that murder is wrong. We're saying not just that it's inconvenient, we're saying this is a moral outrage, and it needs to be stopped. And so when we do that, we don't just say we would encourage people not to murder, we prohibit it, even for those that don't agree with that moral value, and we punish those who refuse to abide by that moral consensus. Well, you know, now, moral values ultimately have their root in religious belief. Uh, well, and so John, I've got to argue with law, you here right now. We live in a secular society. Uh, there is no religious basis to law in in American law anymore, is there? Well, I know you're saying that somewhat tongue in cheek. It is tongue in cheek. We certainly were not founded as a purely secular society. We were founded as a nation in which there would be no one established state church. But the Kramers clearly recognized the role of religion in law and government. Jefferson, who was probably less orthodox than some of the other founding fathers, said in the Declaration of Independence that we're entitled to independence by the laws of nature and of nature's God, went on to say that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are, and he didn't say evolved equal, he said created equal, and he didn't say they are endowed by their government with certain negotiable privileges. He said they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And our first president, Washington, in his farewell address, said that of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Our second president, John Adams, said that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. We have religious freedom in this country, and religious freedom itself is a Christian concept, and we don't want to force people to believe our doctrine, but 
the idea that law has a theological base to it, the Founding Fathers would be completely in agreement with that. So when you say that, and we look at the reigning legal philosophy today as expressed by our Supreme Court in cases like um, Casey versus Planned Parenthood or Lawrence v. Texas, or the, what is the philosophy today? Well, there seems to be a departure from the philosophy of the Founding Fathers. Their philosophy was that we had a constitution, a constitution that was based on biblical principles, a high view for God and his law, a low view of man and his nature, therefore the need to limit government. And the Founding Fathers have moved from that to the view of a living constitution, which sounds like an attractive phrase, but what they mean by this is a constitution that changes with time, and that means... In practical speaking, it means a constitution that could be changed in its meaning any time an unelected federal judge decides he or she wants to change it. And so we see in, like you say, Lawrence versus Texas, where a right to engage in homosexual conduct is manufactured out of thin air, and then we see in Obergefell, where that right is extended to the right to engage in same-sex marriage, which is a redefinition of the institution of marriage, which God established before he established the state, or before any courts existed. And anyway, so this living constitution idea that the framers, or that the justices today seem to adhere to, really is the same thing as no constitution at all, or a silly putty constitution that any judge can mold to mean anything he wants. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Rich Baker of Mount Baker. Uh, and we if you're just tuning in, we're with Colonel John Eidsmo, and he's talking about biblical and natural law in the United States. John, I wanted to pick that question up. We have a very, very important case before us right now in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the uh, Cake Baker's case... Uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop. Mm-hmm. Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop. Tell us a little bit about how these theories of law that you've just been discussing and natural law apply to that particular case. Well, when this case came up to the Supreme Court on a petition for writ of cert, we were the only foundation that filed the amicus brief in support of Masterpiece Cake Shop. Alliance Divinity Freedom, of course, defended them. And then when service was granted, we and quite a number of other organizations... Our firm as well, by the way, John, absolutely. Well, very good. I'm glad to hear that. But at the merits level, of course, a lot of us joined in there. But I guess two things in particular that we stressed in that case. First of all, that the right to religious freedom is the first of all rights guaranteed in the Bill of Rights. And that's because rights themselves come from God. And to say that a so-called right to same-sex marriage, which is found nowhere in the Constitution, which would have horrified the Founding Fathers, which the courts have created out of thin air, to say that right should override the most basic of all rights, free exercise of religion, is certainly contrary to the Constitution. Secondly, the courts have often said that things like prayer in public or public displays of the Ten Commandments or things like this create a message of exclusion, as they put it, to those who don't share those beliefs. I don't really agree with that, but if you're going to use that line of reasoning, I would apply that here. It's to say that when we are going to say that 
people who engage in the business of being a baker or a florist or other occupations like this must bake cakes or, or provide floral displays, which are works of art, to support something that goes against their deeply held religious beliefs, we are creating a message of exclusion to those who believe in the traditional view of marriage. We're saying that you're not really fully part of our society. And so it's not a matter of freedom. It's a matter of forcing a narrow orthodoxy, the orthodoxy that we would call secular humanism, on all of us as a price of living in society or doing business. So that's the intolerance of tolerance, is what I'm hearing you saying in that situation. There's a very interesting book by that exact title by a professor at a Christian college whose name escapes me right now, but it's an excellent book, The Intolerance of Tolerance. I think as we look at this, uh, there's a lot of issues at stake. Um, I'm going to have to have you back for more discussion on this because we're soon to be out of time and we've only begun this conversation. You would argue in your book that there is a direct relationship to freedom and natural law and following the biblical principles, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. And you've got about a minute. Help me out in a minute, and I'll have to have you back for the rest of it. But what is that link? Well, the link is simply this, that God is the author of freedom. In fact, freedom is a need of the soul. Animals don't really have the capacity for freedom. And it's only if we are created in God's image that freedom can be fully appreciated. And so freedom being a gift of God, we need to understand that that is the basis of freedom, and that if we destroy that basis, that Thomas Jefferson even made that observation, that if we, there can be no security for freedom, if we destroy this conviction in the minds of the people that freedom is a gift of God. John, I'm going to have to pick it up from there. I think we're going to have to have a second show where we begin just to talk about that very issue, because that's front and center in our culture today. We appreciate you calling in today. How can our listeners learn more about you and purchase your books? Well, they can call me, and you know, I can give you the email. That Please do. We want the email, and if you got a number, we want a number as well. Okay, well, I'll give you... The, the name Eidsmo, E-I-D-S-M-O-E-J-A, again, E-I-D-S-M-O-E-J-A, at Juno, J-U-N-O, the Roman goddess, not the capital of Alaska, Juno.com, Eidsmo-J-A at Juno.com, or they can simply call me on my cell phone, 334 and then the year of the War of 1812, which obviously is 1812, although it ended in 1815. All right, and that book, and apparently many, many other books, is Historical and Theological Foundations of Law. If you have legal a legal need or a question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Mauk and Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243, again at 312-726-1243 or maukbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. 